0: Thank mm-hmm. you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: given to me by Woody Shaw, Sunship, Dizzy, and John Kahn, dedicated to pursuing a piece of our cultural heritage through interviews with my music heroes. This is The Jake Feinberg Show. Folks, welcome inside the Blackwood Broadcasting Studios. At an undisclosed institute of higher learning, this is The Jake Feinberg Show. Thanks so much for being part of the program today. String instruments of the old Appalachian hootenanny: the banjo, the fiddle, the mandolin, an upright bass, and the hammered dulcimer. A string musical instrument with the strings stretched over a trapezoidal sounding board. The player uses mallet hammers to strike the strings on the dulcimer in combination with the zither or oud in the timeless countries of Iran and China. My guest today has redefined the settings in which a hammered dulcimer can be played. An old folky from western Maryland, he is as versed in country bluegrass as he is with Celtic tunes as he is with jazz. He comes from a hill where there is a common ground, a place around the Mason-Dixon line where Peter Rowan and David Daw Grisman, Stephen Stills, and other revivalists go to spread the language of music, playing in tongues, moving beyond the spoken language, and forming a unit whose collective spiritual mantra is to support each other. You gotta go fishing once in a while, and my guest does, mentoring younger cats and being able to relate to the poverty, abuse, and neglect that many performers carry, especially those who have recently come back from serving our country coming back after two tours overseas and being deported, not given real meaningful opportunities to combat post-traumatic stress disorder. My guest knows the poverty of Appalachia and the traumas of younger war veterans and gives back to his country by helping cross-sections of our people get back on their feet and grow through the arts. His 100-pound hammered dulcimer vibrates with an improvisational ring swinging from one octave to another just like ringing a bell, with those mallets acting as a percussive driver of soul music. My guest is the founder of Common Ground on the Hill in Maryland, which over the last 20 years has sought to bring together artists, writers, journalists, dancers, and singers to perform and teach kids. He is a virtuoso of the hammer dulcimer, performing at the Winter Olympics, presidential ceremonies, the Tonight Show, Tennessee fiddle competitions, and the coal camps near the Blue Ridge Mountains. He's currently resident artist at McDaniel College and knows that any movements around social change are spurred on by finding common ground through the arts and culture. Walt Michaels, welcome to the Jake Feinberg Show.
0: Good to be here, Jake.
1: Well, it's great to have you. Um, Talk to the audience about why you are in Southern Arizona right now.
0: Well, uh, Common Ground on the Hill, which as you said, uh, is in residence in Maryland, um, has spawned a wonderful child. Uh, by the name of Common Ground on the Border. Uh, Wonderful folks from Green Valley and Suarita have uh, come to Common Ground over the last four to five years and invited us to come and witness their work uh, in the borderlands. And it seemed like there was uh, um, very fertile ground here to do what we do back in Maryland here, uh, which is to, you know, seek dialogue through the arts and to, uh, to help educate people as to what's going on in the border and uh, to reach out, you know, try to reach across that great divide and uh, get, some, get some understanding going on. What, is, uh, what has been the most uh, sort of
1: some of the enlightening stuff that you have, that you were unaware of about the border that you now are aware of since you came
0: down here? Well, several things, and I think this is my fourth trip here. And um, uh, every time I've come, I've gone to uh, Nogales, to the Commodore, where um, people who have just been deported or people who are hoping to make the journey across the border are fed um, and, uh, um, you know, just, just given, given a little bit of space in which to, to uh, catch their breath um, this is done uh, through the Catholic Church. And I'd say that you know every person I see there is a new story and a story that is uh, very difficult to see. Uh, yesterday, I saw a young woman who, um, by all appearances, is someone you would have seen anywhere in the United States, um, who is now two months pregnant and trying to reunite with her husband in Dallas and she was getting ready to try to cross the desert. Um, uh, you know, just you know, people who, who's... Uh, there was one fellow there whose uh, leg or foot was obviously broken, another who had blisters so severe that he really should be in a hospital. Um, young people, all there's mostly young people, but some older folks. So you know, every story you see, every person you see has an unbelievable story, and that doesn't get, you know, it doesn't make the news. It just the personal stories don't make the news. I met a man about three years ago who had been driving, uh, riding his bicycle in Oakland without a light and was stopped. He'd been in this country for 27 years, had done government contract work doing sheetrock, et cetera, and uh, was arrested and deported. And um, there he was with a Spanish Bible in his hand. Um, And uh, he had no one in Mexico anymore. All his people were gone. They died. And he was being deported to go back home.
1: (laughs) I was, um, I took a trip down to the Good Shepherd Church um, and had a chance to sit in on a, It's kind of a seminar you were doing. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, you had uh, brought in a couple of uh, service members that had served the country uh, very uh, prolifically, um, younger guys. And um, I just would love you to talk to the audience uh, about, could you articulate how an issue like immigration in in, in 2014, which is so sort of polarizing Mm -hmm. verbally, how can the arts and culture... In a continual flow help
0: that dialogue it's a good question and you know it's it, to some people it would seem to be just sort of warm and fuzzy and really what are you trying to do here um, but music art dance just break down barriers I mean someone said the other day um, what if you could have President Obama and uh, uh, Mr. Putin, sit down and sing a song together. I mean, you know, it would have to propel, <laughs> you know, the conversation a little further. It would open up a bit. Why do you say? Why? Well, because um, you know, m- music uh, is this disarming thing, and, and meaning that it, 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 you have to put down your arms. You have to take up an instrument. And um, there's something about song and uh Uh, you know any of the arts painting that humanizes us it makes us realize on a very basic level that we're just really pretty much the same you know Um, but in in speaking about these young veterans uh, during our three days at Common Ground on the Border these are vets who um, every one of them fought at least two tours in Iraq and uh, I know them very well now um They found out while here that there have been thousands of deportations of Latinos who fought, they thought, for citizenship. They came and fought as many as two, three, four tours, and then when they were finished, they were deported. So these veterans, these young veterans now with us at the Common Ground on the Border, have made it their mission to illuminate that fact and to find out why it happens Um, and and to, to put it out there. I mean, there's an issue that runs across the board, whether you're conservative, liberal, whatever, whatever part of that spectrum. I would think that being deported after fighting for the United States of America and putting your life on the line is distasteful.
1: Yeah, I don't I, – I, that – I think if I walked out of with anything that day, aside from meeting great people, I just was um, – maybe I'm just naive, but I just couldn't believe that um, – I mean, the DREAM Act – I don't want to get too political, but it's right. like, you know, the, they've been trying to get these things – I thought he signed the DREAM – I thought Obama signed the DREAM Act. So to me to hear that you, you go off and just – you come back, let's say you have all your – you know your arms and legs are still intact. You're still okay. You're you're functioning okay mentally. You know, and yet you've seen all the horrors of war, right. and yet you come back, and your country and the country you fought for said, "Well, take a hike." You know, I mean that to me is like, uh, and, and I, that to me is what the shepherd, uh, in this case, Randy Mayer, uh, mm-hmm. sort of he told me he's like, "We're just not doing right by our brothers and sisters," and I think that's a perfect example. I think people get this impression of, I mean. Gosh, a, a two-month-old pregnant woman who's ready to take a journey through the desert, that is unbelievable imagery. But then you—people you, other, otherwise, they say, oh, these people are just—they're just trying to cross the border and, you know, use our resources. But now you have actually people that fought right. and, 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 and sacrificed so much, whether right or wrong, the causes of the war, and then they come home. And, and to me— when you, it, what was striking was to have the bravado and the and the music of these veterans and the evolution of the music of these uh, musicians yeah. to come and say, no, no, I mean, we're going to highlight it. But getting back to the music, they're not going to go down there and state they want to do it through music. Is that right?
0: They want to do it through the arts, yeah. I mean, th- that's how we get the word out there. Um, the leader of this is a wonderful young man named Josh Heisel, two tours of Iraq, and he was um, uh, in a film um, – Uh, by an embedded uh, filmmaker and Neil Young heard about this guy well actually he told me that the night before the invasion
1: in Kuwait uh, they were having you know a a hootenanny and and then he got up there and kind of just went balls out and was like you know he just played his song and that was captured on the video Young when he got back wanted to see this filmmaker he's like i want that cat yeah and that was the night before he invaded iraq which is amazing yeah and so that since to continue
0: so so then neil young got in touch with josh and josh ended up being in a a crosby stills and nash movie of some sort and then he went on tour opening for stephen stills um and uh he writes these songs that are just searing and truthful you know it's just truth music um and uh, at one point, I said to him, you know, we need to do a veterans initiative. We need your friends here, your buddies. Because what happens is they come back, as he said, you're a hero for a month, and then you're an alcoholic. You know, and they, they just self-medicate. They, as they say, they go down the hole. They, they isolate, and that's when it's dangerous. Twenty-two veterans a day uh, commit suicide. So what we're doing is reuniting these people um, getting them back up and out of the hole and and helping them find their next mission as civilians. And this one is, you know, this mission of, uh, of um, trying to figure out why veterans who, you know, Latino veterans are being deported. And we believe that it's uh, generally... The reason is that there are things you have to do once is, you know, as soon as you're in the military, you have to start pushing paper to make this process work. But there's no one telling you to do it. Right. And so, you know, we don't believe, you know, Dr. King said everyone shares a piece of the truth. And it's from finding that piece of the truth that the person across the table from you has. That's the point from which you begin to have dialogue. And if you can get each other to to understand that each of you owns a piece of the truth, then you can work from there. You know, easier said than done. Right? Uh,
1: we right. Uh, <laughs> Walt, Walt Michaels a, a deep history of, of act of social activism through music, and uh, I mean, we were just talking in the green room before about the idea of you um uh, you did voter registration, mm-hmm. uh, you know, back in your in your youth, but. Uh, You know, before we get into Appalachia, I would, I would, I would love uh, you to um, play something, uh, anything you would like on your, uh, on your instrument. Sure.
0: Well, I'll, I'll I'll pound something out on the dulcimer. What I'd like to start with is a, uh, an air, from Shetland. Uh, So much of the Appalachian music is really a result of Scottish, Irish, English, and African music, and I'd like to go back into all of those. musics and uh, learn what I can. Uh, I went to Shetland and played at the Shetland Folk Festival, and we took this tune with us, because I had learned it you know, from recordings, and we took it to Shetland. It's written by Tom Anderson, it's called Das Locket Light, which means the light which has gone out. And when we played it, well, Tom Anderson wrote it for his wife who had passed away. So it's this beautiful air. We played it in Shetland, and when we played it, everyone stood. And I went, "What is going on here?" Found out that Tom Anderson's students, fiddle students, had played this air at his funeral just six months before, at his request. So we had tapped into this, you know, this amazing, you know, sort of power that so, yeah. of the music, and. Um, we learned so much from that, just that moment, and we ended up taking uh, Shetland's Young Heritage Fiddlers, his students, to the States and doing a 28-day tour, including the White House and Philadelphia Folk Festival, etc. and um, we called it the Dream Tour, because Tom Anderson, his, one of his dreams was to have his students play in the States, to show the States what young people are capable of. I mean, they were profound musicians. <laughs> Uh, Slocket late.
1: Can you explain the... um, I'm curious because you mentioned the uh, European elements of Appalachia, but um, also the
0: African roots of Appalachia. Mm -hmm. Can can you talk about that? Um, Well, you know, Appalachia was this place where um, people ran to it. The Scots, um, Scots Scots-Irish were... um, they, they came over and uh, they essentially came through Philadelphia, and they were put out on the outer uh, frontier at the time to be a buffer between uh, the Germans and English and the French and Indians, right? Well, they didn't stay there long, and they fought their way down and migrated down the spine of the Appalachians and populated southern Appalachia. Meanwhile, English folks had... Uh, uh, runaway, indentured servants had runaway to the west, uh, and um, the Irish came later, but the African Americans came up primarily to to do the work of building the railroads, so what you had was this, this mix, and of course you had Native Americans, uh, and... Uh, this mix of people by by was it eight by 1820 the parent population of the Southern Appalachians was finished. It was by that time all that sort of that mixture was happening. So you had people playing Scottish reels. All of a sudden, you know, the bow was in the hand. The fiddle bow was in the hand of African Americans who had a very different read on that music. So you know. I met this guy who did a history of bluegrass music and I asked him so what did you include about the African American influence and he said well nothing and I said well let me ask you a question how is it that Soldier's Joy this old tune what about the the English or Scottish style of playing that that tune how did it change to the southern Appalachian way of playing it which is much more rhythmic bluesy etc and he said well, well I don't know and I said well do you think it was the water
1: <laughs> yeah it you was caught, the African yeah. influence you caught him flat-footed
0: right the, the, the um
1: so when did you I mean you talk a little bit about if you would um, your dad and a little bit about uh, his musical leanings, and then more importantly, how did you begin to... I mean, I see a lot of Hammered Dulcimer records out there, and I collect a lot of vinyl. And uh, what I I love the most about your style is is that, I mean, you literally were at those coal camps. I mean, you've seen that, and there's also the, the Blue Ridge Mountains, and there's all these, you know, the to me I, I i worship those um african-american blind dobro players and those right. guys that from from that from south carolina north couldn't have, it was not a, a pleasant time no. but yet that seeped into the music so i would love to know like, yeah. where you got that
0: well you know I, i'm a, a kid of the 60s i grew up hearing you know the folk revival you know pete Seeger and all that and uh um, while in college, so I you know, I played banjo and, and guitar and sang those Kingston Trio songs like so many other people. Um, when I went to college, I got this opportunity to go to Appalachia, and I really wanted to do that. And uh, my thing was I want to check out the music there, because I knew that was the font. And uh, sure enough, I ended up meeting a, a fretless banjo maker player and uh, ended up staying at his his house and hearing him play these old modal tunes and a number of other musicians as well and uh, I didn't really adopt their styles but it influenced the way I felt about the music and some of the things that I played Um, and meanwhile I grew up in a Methodist minister's home around DC Um, I was a page in the Supreme Court in high school and uh, Witnessed the Kennedy administration coming into you know into power, I was right there. Um, my father was a Methodist minister whose work was to help integrate the Methodist Church in Southern Maryland and the east, eastern portion of uh, Washington D.C. And for anybody who was there in the 1940s or 50s, Southern Maryland was like it was like Mississippi. Mm-hmm. You know, it was tobacco farms uh, with tenant farmers. And so that was my dad's work, and I I rode around with him to go to these various churches, and I heard a lot of great black music, um, you know, black spiritual music and hymns, and um, then when I was in college uh, as well, I I did some voter registration in the South, so I was influenced by all those things up close, um, and then went to seminary and. Uh, there was a great coffee house there. Within a, two weeks of being there, I was sailing on this Clearwater sloop with Pete Seeger. And, you know, part of that whole just open, wonderful folk community. Uh, and uh, I dropped out of seminary uh, after a year and a half there and was in a band called Bottle Hill. And we toured mostly the, uh, the New England area. And um, What was the instrumental makeup of that Bottle Hill? It was, it was straight ahead bluegrass. It was mandolin, oh. guitar, banjo. Uh, string bass, and uh, dobro, and um, those players are all still playing. Barry Mitterhoff uh, was the mandolin player, and he now has been in Hot Tuna for 11 years. So it was a pretty seminal group. We all, Everybody's still playing. A guy named Lou London, great player, um, and it was just a That's stroke of luck that I met either. all these people. There's a wonderful coffee house right there uh, at Drew University, and i saw you know i saw doc watson and just all these people came through so all you know immediately i was connected to sort of the the professional scene of of the music so could you play
1: a little bit of bluegrass bluegrass type tune sure and either I'm, on the guitar or the... yeah the, let me
0: see let me think here for a minute uh, um Yeah, do this for the coal miners out there. So I lived with the coal people.
2: Hammer carry to the captain You can tell him I'm gone Tell him I'm flying Roll on buddy with your load of coal How can I When I die, you can make my tombstone out of number nine coal, number nine coal. Roll on, buddy, with your load of coal. How can I roll when my wheels won't go? Say, how can I roll when my wheels won't go? (laughs) A little bit sloppy
0: there, but I got some arthritis going on. And I repeated a verse, but you know. <laughs> it's great, man. I mean, it's do, early.
1: <laughs> do you uh you know, Seeger he just he left us recently. Yeah. Um do you feel that uh his openness and sort of the that folk scene that openness uh has stayed with you uh to the point now where common ground on the hill has has sort of taken root. Twenty years now, Common Ground on the Hill.
0: Yeah, Pete Pete was very helpful to us, as he was with so many organizations. Pete said you know, in his last 20 years, I heard him say this any number of times, if the world is going to survive, it's going to survive on the work of small groups of people doing important things. He was really into community. And, and you know, when you stop and think about it, that's, that's all we have. You know, we have corporations, we have, you know, monolithic organizations and all that sort of thing, but it really comes down to people. And uh, so... He was a great mentor in that way. Uh, I asked him to be on our advisory board, and he said, well, I'll, I'll be happy to be on your advisory board if you don't ask me to do anything. <laughs> <Just> put, <laughs> except give you one good piece of advice a year. And Because, uh, you know, he was a very busy guy. Um, but he did come